0: I'm Madeline O'Day. I'm an Australia-based New Voices member and, as I just realised today, I've been reporting on China for 35 years, having first gone there as the Beijing correspondent for the Australian Financial Review way back in January 1986. Today, I'm excited to be a guest host on the New Voices podcast to interview Joanna Chu, who is New Voices co-founder and chair a former China correspondent for AFP and the author of the just-released book, China Unbound. For decades, the West assumed a rising China's sole aspiration was to become rich and to one day join the club of fully developed nations. And in order to get there, it was assumed that China would be happy to play by the established club rules. As is turned out, that assumption was dead wrong. As the West adjusts to the realisation that China doesn't simply want to join the existing global order but instead reshape it to suit themselves, Western governments are struggling to know how to respond. China doesn't just want to be rich, it wants to be powerful and how it chooses to project that power has become one of the great issues of our times. I was lucky enough to read China Unbound when it was still in proofs And I was immediately struck with the freshness of the eye that Joanna brings to the subject of the rise of China. In her book, she takes the China story global, reporting from the front lines of China's influence operations in US, Canada, Australia, Turkey, Russia and throughout Europe. She exposes the complacency that has underpinned much of the world's dealings with China, and the urgent need for a more sophisticated, more nuanced, and indeed, more ethical approach to our relationship. Welcome to the podcast, Joe.
1: Thank you so much, Madeline. Thank you so much for being the guest host. And thank you so much for being one of my earliest readers and earliest supporters. And your introduction and description of my own work made me transfixed. But, yeah, thank you so much for coming on (laughs) to be the guest host to actually interview me, which is kind of turning the tables around because um, I'm usually the one asking questions on the New Voices podcast to our wonderful guests. So thank you for doing that because it would be a bit odd if I were to be on here solo (laughs) talking to myself.
0: Yeah, I mean, what I'm saying is is genuinely the case. Sitting here in Australia, we're really – so aware of, of what an important story China is and that it's not a story that's far away in China. I think for a long time there was this assumption that, yes, you know, bad things went on in China or good things went on in China, but basically that was a matter for China. It wasn't affecting us directly outside of the trade sphere, for example. And I think in recent years we've all realised that, in fact, it's a much, it's a much more complex story than that and China is really asserting itself. And I think that your book has come along at just the right time. There's no other book... That I can think of that really addresses this issue head on and really talks about some of the complexities that that comes with that. But before we get into that, perhaps I could just ask you a little bit of background about yourself, because I really felt that your personal background really informed the way you went about doing this book. So perhaps you could start by just telling us a bit about your background, you know, where you were born and grew up and, and how you, I mean, how it actually influenced you in how you went about doing this book.
1: Well, I was born in Hong Kong in the late 80s. And obviously, I didn't make this conscious decision because I was a toddler. But shortly after I was in the world, the 1989 June 4th massacre happened in Beijing. And there was such a strong reaction around the world and such a strong, really strong reaction in Hong Kong because Hong Kongers are watching this when the city was still and would be for a while a British colony, but due to be transferred. Back to Chinese rule in 1997. So before 89, I think Hong Kongers weren't sure what to think about the uh, coming handover. It was very much in the future. But after what happened to the students, to the protesters in Beijing, a lot of Hong Kongers just clearly became very scared. Rightly so. I mean, it was a massacre. An estimated over a million went onto the streets of Hong Kong to protest what happened because they were able to relatively safely because um, at the time, mass protests were legal, but I was actually among those early protesters with my parents and I later learned growing up in Canada that that's why my parents decided to move to Canada to uproot ourselves from our home in Hong Kong and we were among thousands who decided to do that, like people who had uh, the privilege to apply for immigration elsewhere. I wonder if maybe it might have been a kind of reverse psychology thing. My parents wanted me to have a life as a Canadian, far away from Hong Kong, to take advantage of a lot freedoms I had in Canada. But when I kind of found out about the reason my family left and started to read about what the average person's life was like in China, just the differences were so pronounced. So I just felt this desire to understand China, understand Hong Kong, and lived there. So I ended up mostly studying Chinese history because the current situation is so complex. I felt that one of the best ways to try to figure out what was going on is to, you know, dig deep into the history. Like, why do Chinese leaders make the decisions they do? A lot of it is shaped by the last hundred or last thousand years. So I tried to do that and then ended up, you know, following my dreams at that point of being a foreign correspondent, first in Hong Kong for three years and then Beijing for four years.
0: I mean, that's really remarkable when you think about it. I hadn't actually kind of really focused before on the fact that your parents would have been part of that group of demonstrators in Hong Kong. That would have been a very powerful moment for them and and for you. And it is the irony of that now. For so many years, Hong Kong was that place that people could commemorate and remember. And now, of course, it's one of the last places that can do it. So I think that kind of the, it gives some, some sense of that sweep of history that you're talking about. So you first reported from Hong Kong. So what years are we talking about? When did you first arrive in Hong Kong and when were you reporting from Hong Kong?
1: Yeah, I arrived there in 2012 as a reporter. Obviously, I had spent um, lots of summers there with my family, but reporting there, I started at South China Morning Post. And I think it was good to be a local reporter for a Hong Kong-based newspaper because writing to both kind of the insider, outsider audiences. So the newspaper's audience was primarily still people who lived in Hong Kong and Hong Kong was their home and ethnically Chinese. I really got to feel what, you know, many ordinary Hong Kongers felt. I was glad to ease into foreign correspondence that way. And then I ended up writing for Economist, like freelancing for Associated Press and then moved to Beijing in late 2014 after the Umbrella Occupy Central Hong Kong movement. It was winding down by the time I moved to Beijing. And then in Beijing, reporting for German and French media, I ended up mostly having an unofficial beat of human rights and politics. So really had some heavy, intense experiences in Beijing covering those beats.
0: Yeah really plunged into it. I mean, arriving in Hong Kong in twenty twelve, you know, was amazing timing. I mean, though I often you know, when journalists often joke about China, whatever time you turn up is gonna be the most amazing time. But I do think together in twenty twelve, you know, Xi Jinping is just about to ascend to the to the leadership and you've got what's happening in Hong Kong. But what you said about the outsider insider thing, I think is really interesting. And it's a very strong feeling in your book that you are Kind of working in, in different registers all the time. And it's interesting to me, you felt it already in Hong Kong. There's that sense that you are a local at some level, but you're also an outsider. You've been already as a Hong Konger, you're kind of outsider to the mainland of China, but then from being Canadian as well, you have it. And I think what's interesting about it is the way in which you use that to, to almost kind of check your responses to things. And I think a really fascinating way. And I think it comes out in a lot of the nuance in the book, but also, I think it must have been interesting when you were actually in mainland China being a reporter because, of course, your ethnicity gave you some advantages as well. I noticed that you tell at least one story in the book about how the fact that you could pass as a local helped you to, you know, get into the hospital, I think, where um, Liu Xiaobo was, was ill before he died. And I'm just wondering when you were actually operating in China, what were the ways in which looking ethnically Chinese helped you? Um, but what were the ways that it didn't
1: help? So it was actually really interesting and something I wasn't prepared to experience on a day-to-day level because even on taxi rides, like every single taxi driver is like, where are you from? What are you? Are you Korean? Especially at my first months in Beijing, and I had a very strong and strange hybrid Cantonese and English North American accent. So they were very confused about where the heck I was from. Maybe some strange village somewhere in China they didn't know about but they still saw me as Chinese, even though I sounded to their ears, I'm sure so bad. (laughs) So when I would say, I'm Canadian, they're like, no, you're not. Where are you really from? So then my second response, will, I'm from Hong Kong. And they're like, oh, okay. And then they're like, they they wouldn't accept even that I said, um, I'm from Hong Kong, because to them, Hong Kong is a part of China. But Really, it'll to a lot of Hong Kongers. Um, it's so different because not just the political realities, but often it feels weird because it's a city, and you mean you think of cities, you think it's part of a larger thing, but it's been isolated for so much of its history. A lot of Hong Kongers, when they travel, even if they have no like personal uh, hostility towards the mainland, they wouldn't think of going to the mainland. They would go to Taiwan. They would go to Southeast Asia. They didn't feel like a part of, many Hong Kongers didn't feel like they were a part of China. Um, so day-to-day in China, I was treated as an insider whose outsiderness was rejected by basically every um, many Chinese people I came into contact with. Which was strange because obviously it was very helpful for reporting because most people um, didn't treat me with suspicion as they would f- towards many people who look foreign, who look Western. I mean, um, you have some Chinese heritage, but and I'm sure your Mandarin was way better than mine, especially um, decades into your reporting. I'm sure you sounded like just like a, a old Beijing person. but. I'm sure that the people – you had to probably work to gain people's trust more than I did.
0: But I think it's interesting what you were saying about how virtually every day you're having that kind of that experience in the taxi where you're being – it's constantly being reiterated what your identity is, which I think is – Interesting and, and probably, you know, does affect you at some level. You know, it reminds you of that. I think that's interesting too. But we probably should move on and you know, start talking about the book and, and what inspired you to write it. Because one of the interesting things about it from my point of view is that when you left Beijing, I thought, really sorry. I thought, oh, this is a shame. I'm not going to be hearing from Joe anymore in terms of her reporting. Like she'll be going back to Canada. She'll be writing about Canadian things. Oh, I won't hear about, hear, really hear about her stories at all. <laughs> and then, of course, at some level, you thought that too. You were going back, cover a beat in Canada. Then his intervened, things happened. So can you tell us what happened that changed your orientation in relation to your China reporting?
1: Yeah. So even though my focus was human rights politics in China, I also covered so many different things and tried to travel as much as I could in China. I just felt like four years was not enough to barely scratch the surface of what I wanted to write about. But I ended up you know, needing to leave Beijing because I developed asthma, very strong reaction to the pollution there. So I I felt like I was leaving prematurely and wasn't very happy about it. But within months after my return to Vancouver, Canada, uh, Meng Wanzhou, the chief financial officer of Huawei Technologies was arrested, a surprise arrest in Vancouver airport. And This was Canadian police doing so on the behest of the US Justice Department, which wanted her extradited to face fraud charges in the US. And this was a huge, suddenly, this probably the biggest international story just blowing up. China felt it was almost an act of war from the U.S., definitely it was a major part of the trade war. China felt that the U.S. was kind of using Canada to really challenge Beijing, and even though Huawei was a private company. Weeks after that, I heard in the morning that my my friend, a former Canadian diplomat Michael Kogrig was missing. I guess by that point, because I had covered all of these diplomatic tensions related human rights issues, because it wasn't the first time a foreigner ended up being in a kind of like a hostage political pawn situation. I kind of felt at the time it was going to be a kind of a terrible outcome for him. And then another Canadian, Michael Spavor, was also arrested. And it, it soon emerged because Chinese officials pretty much said as much that it was retaliation to put pressure on Canada to release Hmong. That's what it wanted to do. So, so suddenly I felt the China story was not a chapter of my life I could leave for the talented journalists in China to tell that it was actually a very global story affecting foreigners, affecting multinational companies, affecting multiple Western countries' relationship with Beijing because what happened was so just aggressive that it wasn't just Canada and the U.S. that was affected. I think all countries around the world had to kind of rethink By that point, even though there were a lot of signs before, that China's foreign policy, what China is willing to do to get the results it wants to see, could be pretty shocking. So I set out to try to understand what led to the current state of affairs, which is kind of informing the subtitle of my book, A New World Disorder. Like what led to this point where suddenly all of these countries, definitely Canadian government felt very unprepared. And still uh, Canada has promised that it would recalibrate its uh, approach to Beijing, find a way to to prevent things like this happening, but hasn't come up with any new plan.
0: I think one of the things in your book that is really was really quite shocking to me in a way was the fact that, that it seemed that Canada still is kind of struggling to find a more you know, like sophisticated approach to the problem of China that in some senses you feel like one feels reading the book that diplomatic and government level, there's still a bit in denial about it that there really is a problem. I mean, there's obviously a huge problem. There's the problem of the two Michaels and Meng Wanzhou, but there's almost a kind of a sense of, oh, but the rest of it could be the same, you know, business as usual, which is obviously not the case. But you're right that it was a huge shock around the globe. And I think that that particular event in Canada had incredible resonance, just reverberated around the world. And you can see how since then, many, many countries have tried to, to really focus on how they're going to deal with the what's now become the problem of China rather than a relationship. To go back to that, I mean, it's it was a very, as a journalist, it must have been quite an interesting moment because you are, it's absolutely bringing home to you the fact that the China story, you have not left it behind. It's basically just come to your country and just grabbed you and it's grabbed you at a very personal level. The fact you actually know one of Michael Kovrigan, obviously, makes it more poignant for you as well. So that's, I think that's also interesting. And I think that's something that does also come across in your book, that you that you are feeling these things at, a, at lots of different registers, You know, at a, at a kind of personal level, at a kind of a journalist level. You're trying to see it in many different registers, including an ethical level, which I think is really interesting. And maybe we can talk about that in a bit, that it's not just a question of solving the immediate problem of, you know, what do you do about Huawei or what do you do about, you know, these different problems with China, but it's also a question of, how much China is actually challenging us to look at our own institutions and the way we do business and to understand that there's been something that's not been particularly ethical or transparent or robust about the principles that we've been applying to. So I think that's interesting as well. But anyway, so the China story is global. You discover that in the most obvious, you know, most extraordinary way sitting there in Canada. And so was it pretty much soon after that that you started thinking about writing the book?
1: definitely not I didn't think I could tackle such a big big questions in a book I felt it was my duty to try to provide more nuance and context because I was one of very few maybe the only I think Canadian journalist who had re- so recently returned from underground coverage in China so I was really busy just kind of covering the news and writing analysis pieces but then it, it was a Canadian publisher a Nancy who reached out to me like you should write a book about all of this when I thought about writing a book I imagine it'd be on a very specific topic, this one city in China or this one trend in China. I didn't felt like it would be the biggest international <laughs> set of questions about, you know, like it's very a huge set of questions. But I felt it was necessary because it's so relevant to any person around the world. And it would be helpful to have a book that tries to provide as much perspectives and context and case studies of different countries' relationship with Beijing as possible. Because if you're only looking at the headlines day to day, it's hard to step back and think more deeply about these issues. And thanks so much for articulating so eloquently those ethical questions and how I was always checking myself at different registers because I am Chinese, although I identify more as a Hong Konger. But I can also see things from Mainland Chinese perspectives, where many people feel like the criticism about their government can be so extreme and hyperbolic and at times without taking into account the context of what's happening, like why is it such a grave insult that Hmong was arrested? Why was it seen as such an act of hostility to Chinese leaders to the point where they felt like they had to do anything under power to to get her out? Why was her arrest actually? seeming to threaten the Chinese government's legitimacy with its people. I I just, it was, they were big questions. (laughs) And I tried to answer it in ways where I wasn't providing my own analysis. I'm still grappling with what should happen or whose perspectives are missing. So I figured that the best approach would be a journalistic approach where I actually go and do shoe letter on the ground reporting in different countries that have different directions in which they're approaching these questions of what to do with the relations with China. Many places, like when I went to Italy, Greece, Turkey, that relationship was still couched mostly in economic terms where the human rights issues, the political issues, a lot of politicians and elites seemed like they hoped it would be compartmentalized, not a major concern. Or my chapter on Russia's case, not much of a concern at all <laughs> from Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin.
0: I think the case study approach is, is works remarkably well, um, and it is interesting, like reading those those case studies in Italy and, and Greece, because in some ways it, it does reflect a kind of an earlier phase. I can recall in Australia's relationship with China, you know, a bit more, a bit more naive, a bit less. You know, less rounded, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I also was kind of struck, actually, particularly I think in the in both cases of Greece and Italy, but I think particularly in Greece, that there was also a bit of a sense that it didn't matter as much to them as as we thought, you know, like from the outsider perspective, you can look at the Greece thing, for example. And a lot of people talk about that and they go, oh my God, the Port of Piraeus, you know, Belt and Road, you know, here's Greece. They're just like bowing down to China. It's terrible. But then when you look at your case study, you see that, yeah, they're getting into something, but they know what they're getting into. And to some extent, you can also see that they got a better offer from someone else. They just drop it, which makes their relationship with China in some ways feel like it's a transactional phase where you feel like they, could, they can make an escape from their relationship in a way that a country like a Australia, for example, which is so bound up with China, can't, or Canada, you know, we've got big economic relationship. The the other thing that I like about your shoe lever approach is that you're very focused too on the question of diasporas, you know, Chinese diasporas and the way in which they are being affected by this big power play that's going on in the world, that in Australia and in Canada and in other countries around the world, there is a large, you know, Chinese population, ethnically Chinese population, who also are being affected by this in all sorts of personal ways, and are are being made to feel some of the mixed emotions that you've talked about, that you've had to feel as well. that That it can become quite personal, in some cases can become quite threatening. And I think some of your case studies about the way in which, uh, yeah, the diasporas are being put under under pressure are really interesting, and they're not being given support by their own government. So they're kind of left in between. There are many different kind of facets to this.
1: And then additionally, uh, talking about the China story being global, just overlapped with the COVID-19 pandemic starting and originating in China. And there was already this growing international, in some places, like you said, not in all countries, all not in all Western countries, uh, like Greece and Italy, but... Uh, at least in the US, Australia, Canada in 2019, early 2020, there was already this growing distress and unease about Beijing that was leading to some people completely, to, in my opinion, taking the wrong tack, which is to be fearful and xenophobic and to lump Chinese people with the Chinese government. You, you hear people talk about uh, Chinese citizens as if they are all like robots that support and what the CCP is doing and that are all just like rapidly nationalistic uh, rather than, you know, 1.4 billion <laughs> very complex individuals. But then it got much worse as the pandemic raged and there were just all of these horrific anti-Asian physical attacks and online attacks and people suffering, the diaspora is suffering because just growing hysteria around Beijing's rise. And that included members of the diaspora who have for decades been critical of what the Chinese government is doing and have been mourning also for decades that China's reach doesn't stay within its own borders, but that uh, at least since the 90s, Chinese government bodies and officials and agents have been trying to harass, uh, influence in either kind of carrot or stick ways people around the world. So but including these people who have been critical for decades, they were also affected negatively by the growing distrust of China because they would also be the recipient of racist attacks. So reading this book, it was like I was just kind of plagued with uncertainty and doubts that I'm I'm critical, but I really, really don't want my book to be an excuse for yet another wave of racism or another excuse for someone to decide to just be really just anti-China in a very umbrella, broad kind of way. So I hope I achieved it where I was nuanced. And I, part of my solution to wanting to avoid xenophobia was to highlight the voices of the diaspora, which I feel is often missing in many conversations, even though in all of these countries, they're often the most qualified to speak on potential solutions.
0: Oh, look, I think, I mean, absolutely, I think you succeeded at that. And there certainly are books out there that, that play into that xenophobic, frankly, sort of racist approach to the China story and I think it's absolutely the case, and this is something that comes out quite clearly in your book, that the diasporas are put, they're kind of the classic sort of meat in the sandwich. And and certainly in Australia, we saw that. We saw a rise in racist attacks during the COVID last year, particularly. And we've seen some quite ridiculous things where people in the diaspora community in Australia who've been absolutely involved in critiquing China and trying to promote a more nuanced understanding of China and so on, we're actually in the giving evidence in our parliament and being asked to to declare their loyalty to Australia. Declare you're not a member of the Communist Party. You know, think who who do they think they're talking to? These are people who have been critics of China. So there's this a terrible lack of nuance and it's very depressing to see it play out. Um so I think that putting diaspora at, you know, central to your book was really a great Oh, great move. One of the things I liked about your book is the sense that you were talking not just that you were talking to different groups, like you were talking to the diaspora community, or that you were going and actually being on the ground in these different places where China was was exerting its influence and actually being there rather than being just on the phone. You're also In your choice of experts, the people you speak to, the people who become voices in your book, they're wonderfully diverse. And I didn't feel like I was always seeing the same names. It's not that I wasn't seeing respected figures. It's just they were different ones. And I, you know, was very aware of the fact that, you know, you were, you were speaking more to women. You were speaking more to people of, um, Chinese ethnic background and so on, which just gave the book a kind of richness and a sense of it not being just not being tired. And I think I'm assuming this was something that you set yourself to do? Did you actually say, I'm going to determinedly go and seek the voices who are not?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I feel like... So is that
0: part of your method?
1: That was part of my method and that's part of why I'm so passionate about what we do at New Voices Um, because... We told people like right from the beginning, we were founded in 2017 when people were just getting tired of seeing the same faces. Not that they're not respected and reputable voices, but they they were the same mostly white older male voices time and again on TV, on panels, often no women, no people of color. But we found after we built this new voices directory of female and non-binary and non-white experts that producers, event organizers would give us feedback saying, like you said about my book, that it was enriching, that it was rich, it gave unexpected perspectives that people hadn't heard before. And I think with the huge questions the book tries to address, like having a diversity of voices is definitely going to help and not hinder and when we hear from a lot of people who who aren't white i think that naturally puts some of the responsibility and spotlight on western governments and western societies people in power there including people of more privileged backgrounds like who are white and able bodied what their responsibilities are um and i think it was particularly acute in the U.S. chapter because, you know, obviously President Trump's rhetoric on China was so harmful and it wasn't just him. And it was so hypocritical and engaged in so much of the misinformation, disinformation and the lying that those critics say that Beijing indulges in. I hope that when people see the book as a totality, they'll see that there's no like clear good or bad guys and that if western democracies are genuine about wanting to address these challenges of what's happening to the Uyghurs in Xinjiang what's happening in Hong Kong that one of the best ways is to lead by example and not open yourself up to really simple defenses from Beijing to say that when China does say this that the Washington in particular is a hypocrite and doesn't practice what it preaches and I hope that raises those uncomfortable questions
0: yeah I do think that your concluding chapter is really powerful because it's in that chapter that you really bring all these ideas together like you've just been talking about. The question of China, it raises really uncomfortable questions about our own societies and the fact that we can't continue to have this idea, which I think people did have for a very long time, that somehow the West was this club of people who had just worked it all out. You know, we had the best systems, the best economic system, the best democrat, you know, political systems. And really the best aspiration for China would be to join our club, play by our rules and be more and more like us. And that is still pretty much the kind of attitude you do feel that's, that is behind a lot of what people say in the West about the relationship with China and feel a bit offended about the fact that China wants to, to try to create its own rules or create its own order, global order that people feel that it should be self-evident that our order is better. Question: and I think it's an interesting question when we look at the question of how do we do exactly what you say. We point to things that we don't like about the Chinese system, the treatment of Hong Kong, the treatment of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. How do we talk about those things in a way that is understanding that we, yes, we do also have issues in our own countries. And if we're going to stand up against China, we need to look at our own institutions and see the way in which they are lacking in transparency or democracy or in terms of people's rights. We have to appreciate the human rights problems of our own countries as well. But I really love the way that you started with a wonderful anecdote, which when people read the book, they can read. So I won't spoil it for them, but it's a lovely anecdote, which kind of shows the way in which a particular person in the diaspora living in Australia is confronted by the fact that the Chinese secret services basically are watching him and wanting to know that they're watching him. And he kind of stands up to them in a way, and in standing up to them, he sees their weakness in a way. He sees himself as being under threat, but by standing up to them and confronting them and looking them in the eye, that's empowering and it leads to certain results for him personally. And the way you develop that idea through the chapter is really interesting. That's probably the thing about the book I would like, I would like to hope that it would be read by very widely and read by people who are in positions of power and authority in our countries, because I think we really do need to ask ourselves those uncomfortable questions. And I don't mean in a what about way. And also some people who just want to go on business as usual, they just want to keep on having a wonderful economic relationship with China so they can sell things. We should confront the fact that look at the way we've been happy to take this kind of investment and ask no questions. Look at the way we've been happy to buy all our cotton from China and never ask about how it's produced, and so on and so on and so on. We need to understand that these questions are, you know, we're living in a global world. China is a big player and will continue to be, and we need to work out how to deal with China in an ethical way, and the only way to do that is to be ethical.
1: And just to add another example to to your list, feeling that... Countries like Canada, Australia could benefit financially from welcoming immigrants from China, international students from China who contribute billions to their economies, but not have any strategy to think about how to protect this population from what has been apparent for for decades that these types of populations have been warning about that uh, China's monitoring and intimidation follows them wherever they go when they're attending school in Quebec and Canada, that um, they would get these threatening phone calls and that their parents would be menaced uh, back in, back in China for what they're saying as an international student. I think the West has been very content to get all the benefits without thinking too hard or devoting really any resources to uphold the ethics that they purport to uphold.
0: I mean, that's a very important point and one that has definitely been brought home in Australia very strongly over the last couple of years. The the two points, you know, the the sense that, you know, we've been happy to take all of this, all of these benefits and really, as you say, do virtually nothing to protect our local diaspora population. But also it's certainly the case with the students that we have not, we haven't made any of the kind of efforts to protect them that we should have done. And that's become very obvious. The need to invest in that so i think that's another issue that i'm um, hopefully i think that one is coming a bit more to the fore now and can be hopefully addressed in a way that isn't just doesn't promote more xenophobia and kind of asian anti asian feeling i think that getting that balance right is really important and that's where you know you need a kind of you need a dedication from a gov- you know from governments around the world to to be dedicated to that I think it's interesting that people have been trying, I think journalists are trying to do it now. You do see sometimes at a diplomatic level, government level, they try to do this too, try to distinguish between China as a kind of global entity and the Chinese and to understand what you were saying before, that you know, you've know got 1.4 billion individual people and they're not a kind of mass. But I think even in that conversation, people are still finding it a bit hard to, to know how to have it in a way that isn't just, again, just used as another kind of rhetorical device. But probably the answer, I don't know whether you agree with this, but it seems to me the answer, a lot of the answer is to do with listening more to the communities, maybe the Chinese communities in our own countries. And that still is not happening. Like, I don't know what it's like in Canada. What's the, I mean, what is the political representation like? Do you have a lot of people of Chinese-Asian background in your parliament or is it still?
1: No, very, very little. So similarly in Australia, like very quite a large population, especially in the cities, but very little political representation and not attempt to recruit people of Chinese background or with experience in China in foreign policy and consulting roles. And it seems like such an obvious solution to the problems we have, that we should have people who are knowledgeable, you know, regardless of their ethnicity, in these positions to make a difference. But Looking at the analysis of Biden's group of advisors, foreign policy advisors, you know, very little China experience. So it becomes abstract. It's hard to really understand the issues head on and intimately.
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely the case here too. And you see it in the media as well. But we should talk a bit more about some of the kind of nitty gritty of writing the book and some things you learned while you were doing it. So you did have the the great experience of having a publisher um, actually approach you. So that was great. So you didn't have to go out looking for a publisher. How quickly did you make an agreement with them about what the scope of the book was going to be like? And, you know, did you feel powerful in that relationship? How did it go?
1: Yeah, I think we moved really quickly at the time. I was like, "This is quite a rush." They wanted the book published within two years. I got the book deal in early 2019. It was almost like like we were psychic, knowing that within a year of me, you know, starting on the book, this global pandemic would happen that would affect my plans of travel. So it turns out that I did most of this country to country case study reporting in Europe, Australia, and I went to the U.S. and different parts of Canada. In 2019, the only place that I planned to go to that I didn't go to was Russia. And I ended up delaying, delaying, thinking that the pandemic would end soon and then I would be able to go to Russia as planned. That didn't happen. Instead, I think it was fortuitous. I worked with two really talented Russian journalists on the ground instead. And they were able to, like me, get the access in, in Russia that I don't think I would have gotten, especially because of this complex relationship between Russia and China and also Me presenting as a Chinese-looking woman would have encountered some mistrust or difficulties. But I think that level of access and insights they got from Russian people across the country, and they were traveling in the dead of winter in Russia and Siberia. I actually loved how that chapter turned out, if I can say so myself, (laughs) having that collaboration. I think the challenge of the book was, like we said before, like the scope of it, but trying to address it through keeping the narrative engaging and accessible through Trying to bring alive different people's stories because, as a journalist, I know that people identify with real human experiences. So, I tried to use that in, in the chapters where I try not to be repetitive. I want to look for different people's stories and different people's perspectives to kind of add to a tapestry of perspectives on these issues. Another big challenge was in each country providing concisely both the historical and the political context within that country and that country's relationship historical and contemporary with China. I mean, I think I was like pulling out my hair (laughs) trying to write this where it's so hard to do it concisely and with nuance when you have, I felt like I didn't have enough words. The book is over 300 pages, but so much had to be packed into each chapter to have a hope of trying to capture the complexity of each country's ties with China.
0: I think you're right. I mean, the word tapestry is a nice one because you definitely um, do that very well, that thing of using individuals um, to sort of start bringing the story to life and then interspersing that with this more kind of narration as well, analysis. You're absolutely right. I think people are, you know, if they're going to sit down and read a book, they want to feel like some kind of personal engagement with the people in it. That's what people want, right? So I think that that's something you've done very well. You must have had a pretty strong structure in your head. Did you have a strong structure in your head from the start? Like you had the different countries, you had a sort of sense of how you were going to cover the globe. Is that Was that right or did the, the structure kind of develop while you were writing?
1: I sort of had, you know, a plan of what I would try to do to and the questions I had in each country. But the overall structure of the book kind of emerged itself where I grouped the middle powers together, Canada, Australia, Italy, Greece. And then the first part of the book kind of provides a grounding of my time, my seven years reporting in Beijing and Hong Kong, because I wanted to start with the on the ground perspective from China and from critics within China. And then kind of spiraling outwards towards uh, the West and different Western perspectives, including perspectives that aren't what we're used to being Canadian, Australian, which is nowadays it's quite critical, including perspectives from the West that still seeks to expand ties and to have as strong ties as possible with Chinese companies and the Chinese state. So I felt that was interesting to me because you can get kind of stuck in a bubble and not really understand different perspectives. Like the Greek ship owner, why is he so enthusiastic about Chinese investment at uh, the Greek real estate developer and how he said, he doesn't care if it's penguins from Antarctica, if you have money come to Greece. They're very, so pragmatic.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: I love that.
0: <laughs> and I think, I mean, absolutely kind of, yeah, def- an archetype, you know, that we can all recognize. And I think, and also, to some extent, understand, yeah, okay, <laughs> from his point of view. And Greece, of course, you know, they they probably feel they haven't been that supported by the rest of Europe. So, <laughs> you know, why not? I must say, I I loved all the early section of the book where you talked about you know your reporting experience in Hong Kong and China. And, and if you ever wanted to do a sequel, I think you could totally do more of a memoir about being a correspondent in China because there's there's great stories in there, but there's obviously hints of other stories and and things you could get into too. So. So one of the things that it's interesting to talk about too, when you talk about writing a book, I think people are often interested in this, is, you know, how you organize your time to do it. You've obviously got a job, um, in Canada, but you're trying to write, you know, a 300 page book as well, 100,000 words over a pretty demanding time. As you say, you were very lucky that you decided to front load all your on the ground stuff to 2019. That turned out to be a very good choice, which I assume meant 2020 with the pandemic, um, the shutdowns. You probably found it in some ways a
1: calm time to write.
0: But still, you've got a lot of things going on. How did you organize your time to to just get the thing done?
1: Yeah, so the pandemic, one of your fellow <laughs> advance readers of the book is John Wong, the first Canadian correspondent to Globe and Mail in Beijing of Chinese descent and she told me the pandemic is not a writer's retreat. (laughs) It's not relaxing mountain getaway when there's this deadly pandemic that's ravaging your country and the world, and you're worried about your own health and your family safety pre-vaccines. So it was strange because I did have the time because when I first started writing the first drafts, I had a demanding job from a newspaper as a managing editor in downtown Vancouver, where I had to commute to spent two hours commuting every day. And then after work, which often was, you know, a 10 hour days, at least I would have to try to find time in the evenings to do some work. And it was an expensive uh, motivational tactic, but I would go to a different nice coffee shop every evening. I would go to happy hours where there was also good wifi <laughs> with my laptop and, I develop, you know, obviously burnout at different points, trying to juggle all of it. And at the same time, also working on New Voices, which is my passion project for this community that's so lovely. One of my breaking points was I was having dim sum in Vancouver, with my parents. And I don't know, I think they asked me to do something. And then I just snapped. I was like, I can't do it. I'm trying to help run a nonprofit and a newsroom and write a book at the same time. I just kind of like really raised my voice and uh, people were just staring. And I think I needed after that, I had to be like, what can I cut from my life? How do I handle this workload? I think a lot of writers end up just trying to figure out what they could cut. So luckily, my husband cooks. So I basically did no chores for a year (laughs) and to his chagrin, but he was very supportive. He would literally go down to my basement office during the pandemic and give me plates of food while I was typing into the late hours or early hours of the morning, some some weekdays. And then I would set myself mini deadlines throughout, like after I was done each chapter, I would take a little break to... Not think about the book, and I would do some online shopping and just set many goals and and feel many sense of accomplishment throughout the way because otherwise, you just it just feels like a big, long marathon that's you know, riddled with anxiety. So, um, actually, the first draft was the worst part, but uh, near the end, once I was actually working (laughs) with editors, really talented editors, I felt so much better because it was a What I was used to, like as a newspaper journalist, a a team effort again, where these editors who had these eagle eyes for facts and they would know if I repeated something, you know, 200 pages apart, they would ask questions that really helped me figure out what I really wanted to say. Yeah, definitely... The lonely part is when you're trying to get that first draft down. But afterwards, if I could tell people in the beginning phases of writing a book, it gets better. (laughs) The revisions are, to me, they were way better because it wasn't so daunting anymore. And I had people giving advice and their own feedback. Like, how did you feel writing your first book? Like, your book is also very broad.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I absolutely agree with you about setting kind of mini mini goals. I think that's really important because yeah, it can it can feel very overwhelming the sense of a long project stretching ahead of you. I actually yeah, a bit completely differently to you. I I started to write the book with no publisher and no agent. I I was determined to write the book, but I just I couldn't get myself. I was in China working, and I just could not get myself into a into a headspace to actually make a pitch to anybody or to even explain it to anyone outside my own head and my own partner about what I wanted to do. So I ended up doing the kind of the reverse of any kind of advice I'd give to anyone, which was give up my job, you know, look at my savings, work at how much time I had, left China, came to Australia and just sat down with a kind of empty page you know, or the empty computer screen and started writing from there. But I was really um, fortunate like you to have a really supportive partner. And I found that a thing that really was helpful to me when I was writing was, as you say, the kind of the mini goals very early on a friend told me about some advice that she'd read that if you're trying to be creative you can't be creative for more than 90 minutes at a time. And I thought, "Oh, okay." So instead of doing what I've been doing for a while, which was sitting down at the start of the day and trying to write all day and finding I wasn't getting anything, I started doing this 90-minute thing. And for me it was like a magic thing. I never try to write for more than 90 minutes. And actually 90 minutes is it's an eternity actually. <laughs> but I find if you sit down and you think, "I've only got an hour and a half here." And you switch off the internet, and you're, you know, you're quiet, or in my case, listening to um, movie um, soundtracks, I found very useful. And you just have 90 minutes. Then at the end of that, you can go and do something else, like you said, you know. So yeah, like I, I did the wrong thing in terms of, in a sense, in the terms of not starting with a publisher and a contract or an agent or whatever. But For me, it worked really well because it meant that I burnt all my bridges. I had to write it. So it was good for me from that point of view. But then to set really many goals. So in every given day, and I still find that with writing, I never say to myself, you have to sit there all day and write. I always say 90 minutes. Start with 90 minutes and see how you go. And that, yeah, that does work. But editors are really important.
1: Yeah. But yeah, like your brain can't handle being creative and writing all day. And that's also why I felt so burnt out at the beginning I would set like goals of writing every evening and writing every weekend and not give myself any breaks. But that just doesn't work because you you spend all day, you know, on the same paragraph editing it over and over again. Once I was kinder to myself, I actually was more productive. Where in the evenings if I was tired, I would do more low bandwidth activities like organizing my interview notes or really, really roughly outlining. Not expecting perfection and beautiful sentences coming out after a long day when you're tired, and only expecting and planning to write when I knew I would be energized and alert, like after a nice walk. Just kind of being aware of your energy levels, I think that's helpful.
0: I think that, I mean, that word kindness is really important, being kind to yourself. And also the other thing you say is really good advice about different kinds of levels of work too because, for example, there's always stuff you need to check. You know, there's things you need to check on the internet or you need to check with a phone call or something. You can have those as things to do when you're not like feeling that energized to write and as you say organizing your notes for me transcribing was like a very relaxing activity because i had lots and lots and lots of interviews with the artists um, mostly in chinese so i had to spend a lot of time transcribing and in some ways it was a huge chore but it was also just something i could do and feel like i was making progress when i couldn't you know couldn't really write but you're right about walks so i think i think going for a walk is like almost the most productive thing you can do when you're writing a book you know, when you get to a point um, to go out and actually just be in nature, I'm not sure whether you did this, but for me there was quite a long period where I wasn't showing my draft to anybody but I would go out for long walks with uh, my with my husband and we would talk about, I would say, I'm planning to open each chapter like this or I'd, or I'd just written this thing and uh, I wouldn't show him the actual words where it would become a kind of thing of like always editing the words. I would talk about the concept or something and that would be really helpful. Um, but sometimes it's just nice to be out in nature and not thinking about the book. And as you walk along, sometimes you come up with a solution to some problem you've got with the writing or structure. And, yeah, I think the biggest advice I think you've given, and I would give too to any aspiring writers out there listening, is do not think that tying yourself, chaining yourself to a computer for hours a day is the way to write. You know, to write a successful manuscript, there are always out there those things written by you know famous writers where they say, "I write for four hours in the morning, I have lunch, and then I have four hours." Now, yes, (laughs) a John Le Carre, there are people who can do that, but most writers, it's not like that. You are not a writing machine. You should find your own ways of disciplining yourself. And if that's just writing for half an hour a day, or it's only writing on one day of the weekend, or whatever, you do what makes you productive. So, yeah, I think that's really good advice. So now you're actually in that wonderful position of having your book in your hand. And it's an incredible moment when you open that box of the books that your publisher sends you. It's just the most joyous thing. Stroking the cover, looking at it, it's wonderful. But it it reminds me of the fact that, you know, one of the reasons why we write is because we've been inspired to write by reading other books. And I thought it might be nice to get some recommendations from you about, and I'll give some as well, about books about China that we found inspiring, or we think people should dig out?
1: So we're talking about the voices of people of the Chinese diaspora or Chinese citizens themselves. And two books that I think were very strong in recent years was one of our New Voices members, Caroline Ken. She's a Chinese citizen and writing for international media. She wrote a memoir about her family and her life, but she wrote a memoir under Red Skies about her free generations of life, loss, and hope in China. So that's a recommendation. And also a more recent book that I'm just starting um, is from another New Voices member, Shen Yang. And she wrote about being an illegal child in China. So her family had already had one child. But... They had her. She was one of many children who were illegally existing under fake IDs. Her experiences are very interesting about something that still is a reality today because now there's a two-child policy and they're they're thinking about increasing that. But there's still a restriction on number of births, which means children who are born out of that end up in this, if you're not rich enough to pay all the fines and jump through all the hoops, they, they end up in this limbo
0: yeah. I think that both of those books sound great. Actually, I, I agree with you that it, like I also want to recommend a couple of books that give you a sense of the sweep of, of Chinese history too. Neither of them are, are that new and actually both of them are novels. There are two that I particularly want to mention. One is um, Ma Jian's Beijing Coma, which came out a few years ago now and it's, it's basically a book about Tiananmen Square, but it takes the story from that moment, which is an incredibly a pivotal moment for the character in the book through to basically to the present day, to the, to, um, to when he stopped writing the book. And it's to me, one of the, when I read it, I thought this really just embodies the China, the development of China that I've seen myself over the years since Tiananmen. It really felt so strong and so real. And I thought, His novelistic approach was so brilliant. The other is um, a Canadian writer called Madden Tien, and she wrote a book called Do Not Say We Have Nothing, which is a wonderful book where she, she takes a sort of family story from the sort of establishment of the People's Republic of China, 49, through to, again, to the present day, telling it through various family members. And it's incredibly poignant tale. Again, Tiananmen Square is a kind of pivotal point in the book which I think it is a pivotal point in Chinese history, Um, and she takes a particular personal approach to that too. And with these two books, you really have a sense of the loss and the tragedy of Chinese history, but also it's the persistence of, of people's dreams and hopes for the country and the sense of people Throughout the world, really, you know, in diasporas and within China who dream of a different kind of future. So I think they're both wonderful books. Um, I'm going to cheat a bit and actually put two more in. There are two books that I just loved, um, nonfiction books too. There's, there's one by a Hong Kong writer, um, um, Li Qinghuang. Um, she wrote a book called Against the Law and it was, some studies she did in, um, in China in the 1990s, and it's about the way in which workers adapted in the kind of rust belt in the north and in the kind of sunshine belt in the south to the new economic policies. Um, so post Tiananmen Square in the 90s, the policies that, that transformed China economically. And it's the most brilliant book. Like you, she's, it's very much about case studies. It's about talking to individual people who've gone through that period. And I learned so much about what that transition decade was from her. And the other is Jonathan Spence, who I read before I went to China in 1986. I read one book, really. I mean, I read lots of books, but there was one book that I read that's, I still have on my shelf today, which is a book called Gate of Heavenly Peace. It's basically about the, the sort of drive within China for democracy, really, but up until about the mid 80s or early 80s. And it's just a fascinating background account of of China, you know, China in the 19th century, the 20th century, the way in which many, many people have tried to make a better China in China. And it it has reminded me over the years that the China that the Chinese government is constantly trying to portray, a China that doesn't believe in such notions, is just not true. So, yeah. Anyway, I just I think that it's 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 a nice thing to have books that inspire you, buy you all the time. And so, um, even though I'm working on a different project now, I have a whole kind of bookshelf full of books um, that meant something to me. And those books are all there. And I sometimes, when I'm just looking for inspiration, I just look at the, <laughs> I look at the spines and think, look, all these wonderful books. You know, they really yeah they inspire you.
1: And definitely, your book was something that inspired me when I was writing. Oh, well,
0: thank, thank you. I mean, it's been an absolute pleasure and to be so so impressed. It was a challenging project and you really you pulled it off beautifully. So, you know, congratulations.
1: Thank you so much, Madeline, for being so generous. And I would encourage all our listeners to read The Phoenix Years and whatever you're working on, Nick's, and your past articles too, because I think they're a good compliment. So I love it. So thanks again for all of your support.
0: Thank you so much for being in the chair today, Joe. It was so delightful and to talk about your book, which I honestly believe everyone who's interested in the China story should read. You've been listening to the New Voices podcast, hosted by me, Madeline O'Day, and featuring the New Voices Chair and the author of China Unbound, Joanna Chu. This show was edited by Megan Cattell and the opening music is by Wu Fei. The closing sounds are Muli Hua by April Jew. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you don't miss even one episode. We're also on Twitter at New Voices. We're on Instagram at New Voices underscore network. And we've got a website, newvoices.com, where you can find all those links and our podcasts And we hope to have you with us again soon. Goodbye.